Working on nuclear issues can be a long, depressing slog, dealing with an unreasonable world with little encouragement and rarely anything that can be labeled an unmitigated success. So when you turn on the world's mainstream media and you hear, The Norwegian Nobel Committee has decided to award the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017 to the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. I can. When you hear something like that, after you get through being stunned, you have to smile and think that maybe, just maybe, there's starting to be a way out of the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, Former White House Senior Policy Advisor Bob Alvarez calmly and rationally explains the current situation with North Korea, as well as what he would do if he were in charge of national policy in dealing with that country. And we hear from the front lines of the exciting news about ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, in the first few minutes and hours after they learned that they had won the Nobel Peace Prize for 2017. Plus, we will have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the duck and cover report on the Nuclear Regulatory Commission's reports of what's gone wrong this week at those aging nuclear reactor teapots, and more honest nuclear information than will fit in anyone's tweet, even if it's one of ours. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, October 10, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out this week with the biggest news we've had in a long time. On Friday, October 6, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. The Geneva-based Coalition of Disarmament Activists from Around the World was honored for its efforts to advance the negotiations that led to the first treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. The treaty was reached on July 7, 2017 at the United Nations and is now in the ratification process when 50 nations have not only signed the agreement but ratified it through their legislative processes, it will become international law. The Norwegian Nobel Committee said in a statement, 
The organization is receiving the award for its work to draw attention to the catastrophic humanitarian consequences of any use of nuclear weapons and for its groundbreaking efforts to achieve a treaty-based prohibition of such weapons. The choice is seen by many as a blunt rejoinder to the world's nine nuclear-armed powers and their allies, all of which boycotted the negotiations. Bridget Finn is the executive director of ICANN, which has only a three-person office in Geneva, Switzerland. When she received the call from the Nobel Committee, she reacted as so many do when they first hear good news of a major award going to them. I was worried that it was a prank. Uh, it's just very, very difficult to, uh, to uh, you just get so nervous that maybe it's not real. So it wasn't really until the actual broadcast when she spoke and said the name ICANN uh, that we really understood that it was for real. Uh, so uh, extremely honored uh, and excited about this. As she faced the world's media in a press conference, Bridget Finn explained what the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons was about, and why its seemingly impossible stance is so important. The international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons is a global campaign coalition uh, consisting of 468 and non-governmental organizations in over 100 countries. Um, it consists of everything from peace organizations to humanitarian organizations, environmental organizations. We were launched in 2007. Uh, very much inspired by another Nobel Prize winner, the International Campaign to Ban Landmines, as a way of really making a big uh, concerted push to prohibit nuclear weapons. And just this year, uh, in July, we adopted the Treaty on a Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, which is the result of our campaigning for a decade now. Uh, and uh, now we're just going to get as many states to sign and ratify this treaty and use it as an effective uh, advocacy tool and campaigning tool to put pressure on the nuclear armed states. Do you think the nuclear armed states will change their mind and join your treaty? Uh, because of this price? Uh, of course, it doesn't work like that. Uh, and it's a long-term uh, long work. Uh, getting rid of nuclear weapons isn't going to happen overnight. Uh, the treaty is meant to make it harder to justify nuclear weapons, to make it uncomfortable for states to continue with status quo, to put more pressure on them. That isn't going to happen overnight, of course, uh, but it's a huge boost to all of the people that have worked on this issue for a very long time. The new generations that are mobilizing around this issue through our campaign and other uh, work, it's a huge signal that this is worthy to work on, and this is something that is needed and it's appreciated. Uh, so I think that that's, this award is really uh, a huge boost to all of those people who have tirelessly worked on this issue. That was Bridget Finn, the executive director of ICANN, on the group being awarded the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize. I just can't say that enough times. It feels so good. And then there's the rest of the nuclear nonsense. At the Hanford site in Washington State, work to fill in a nuclear waste tunnel that partly collapsed started and then stopped after some of the dirt used to initially stabilize the tunnel began to cave into it. In other words, the fix of the collapse was another collapse. The cave-in early Wednesday, October 4th, happened where workers were injecting grout, a concrete-like material usually used around bathtubs, into the tunnel. 
by the way, this was the Purex plant tunnel, which stands for Plutonium Uranium Extraction Plant Complex. And it holds eight rail cars loaded with highly radioactive contaminated equipment. It was discovered to be partly collapsed on May 9. And thus far, remediation has consisted only of pouring sand and soil on top of it. This latest problem showed up after only 15 of the estimated 650 truckloads of grout were placed in the tunnel. The process has since resumed. Can't wait to find out what goes wrong next. Haven't had one for a while, so it's time for the duck (laughs) and cover report. A compendium of what's gone wrong with our nuclear reactors in the last week, courtesy the official reports of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. In Michigan, a safety valve on a collection tank at the Cook Nuclear Plant unexpectedly opened, prompting an emergency response. At Millstone in Connecticut, an unusual event, that's an actual label, the first step on a four-step process to kiss your ass goodbye, but an unusual event happened based on flammable gas in the turbine building. Point Beach in Wisconsin had an unusual event. There's nothing more usual at the NRC than an unusual event. They had a toxic gas spill in a service building within the protected area. Problems that, according to the NRC, could have prevented the fulfillment of a safety function of structures or systems that are needed to mitigate the consequences of an accident happened at Nine Mile Point in New York, Columbia Generating Station in Washington, Callaway in Missouri, and Susquehanna in Pennsylvania. And a problem at Perry in Ohio required a shutdown. (laughs) Okay, I'll stop that now. In the wake of Hurricane Nate, there's a compelling article that came out from miningawareness.wordpress.com, one of my favorite sites for really reliable information. It's headlined, Louisiana Nuclear Power Station's Dangerous Problems with Thunderstorms. Hurricane should serve as a reminder. It's about the reactors at Riverbend and Waterford, and we will have a link up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 329. Over to Japan, where it is big news that the District Court of Fukushima Prefecture has ordered the state, state and, and TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, the operators of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, to pay damages for mental stress resulting from the 2011 nuclear accident. The ruling comes in a class action suit filed by about 3,800 people. This is the second case in which a court has acknowledged the government's liability for post-traumatic distress. The plaintiffs brought the lawsuit in 2013, and they include people who continued to live in their homes in the prefecture, as well as those who evacuated from the area after the disaster. At issue was whether the government and operator TEPCO could have foreseen the major tsunami on March 11, 2011, and prevented the damage. Whether TEPCO is paying appropriate compensation to evacuees, as well as the extent of its recipients, were also questioned. And bringing up the rear, more than 12,000 people across Japan have filed class action lawsuits over the accident with courts in 18 prefectures. But that hasn't stopped Japan's Nuclear Regulation Authority from approving TEPCO's right 
to restart two reactors at the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear plant in Niigata Prefecture. The restart is expected to encounter strong opposition from people living near the plant on the Japan seacoast. Sean Burney, a senior nuclear specialist with Greenpeace Germany, accused Japan's NRA of being reckless. He said, It is the same disregard for nuclear risks that resulted in TEPCO's 2011 triple reactor meltdowns at the Fukushima Daiichi site. Approving the safety of reactors at the world's largest nuclear plant when it is at extreme risk from major earthquakes completely exposes the weakness of Japan's nuclear regulator. Greenpeace said 23 seismic fault lines ran through the Kashiwazaki Kariwa site, and opinion polls show that most Japanese people oppose nuclear restarts. Here's an interesting Japanese footnote to ICANN winning the Nobel Peace Prize. Despite Japan's decades-long campaign against nuclear weapons, the government found itself in a bind when ICANN won as it relies on the U.S. nuclear umbrella for its security and is, like the nuclear powers, not a party to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, adopted in July at the United Nations, for which ICANN is being honored. Tokyo did not even release an official statement to mark the occasion. One high-ranking foreign ministry official tried to explain the official quandary in terms of the perceived threat to Japan from North Korea's nuclear and missile development programs. He said, The standpoints are different between countries that are far from North Korea and us, which is facing an actual threat. However, Fumio Kishida, who served as foreign minister when the treaty was adopted, said, People who are making efforts towards the abolition of nuclear weapons won the peace prize. We should welcome it. In advance of the 2020 Tokyo Olympics and Paralympics, the Japanese government has made plans to promote exchanges between countries and territories participating in the Games and those areas affected by the 2011 Fukushima triple meltdowns. Iwate Prefecture is working on Canada to attract training camps for sports climbing. Miyagi Prefecture is working with Italy to attract training camps for soccer. And Fukushima Prefecture is going after Switzerland for air sports exchanges and music events. In Europe, the Dutch Ministry of Public Health is distributing iodine tablets in provinces located near nuclear plants. This was announced on October 3rd, and around 3 million people in large parts of the region will have already received a packet of pills in the mail by the time this program airs. Iodine pills will be sent to all children under the ages of 18 who live within 100 kilometers of a nuclear plant. Within a radius of 20 kilometers from a plant, all people up to the age of 40 will get a packet of pills. Pregnant women can buy them from a pharmacy. What, they don't get them free? And what about your elders? We're not worth it if you were over 40? You're thinking, ah, they're old, let them die? A few years ago, Belgium decided to distribute iodine due to citizens' concerns about the safety of nuclear power plants Duel and Tehange. And in 2014, the Dutch government decided to harmonize the policy so that Dutch citizens can have the same protection as German and Belgian people living near nuclear power plants. 
What, they want the old ones to die too and don't give us the pills? Or pregnant women? This should really have been the week's numbnuts. In Belarus, specialists of the state institution Belashova have checked the level of radioactive cesium-137 in Belarusian mushrooms. They say that the norm has been exceeded in almost all mushrooms from the country. I want to know what they consider to be the norm. The real norm for radiation in food is zero. But whatever they consider to be normal, the radiation was 40% above that. Even as the problems with nuclear reactors and public resistance to them continues to grow around the world, there are those who seem to be planning for a big nuclear reactor boom. Try Home, a French-based company that provides nuclear training, has inaugurated its new learning center, the largest in France and one of the biggest of its kind in Europe. Its six training workshops contain exact replicas of nuclear facilities of all types, including a nuclear reactor, a fuel cycle plant, and a nuclear-powered submarine. The organization claims to train more than 30,000 students each year and is planning to invest 7 million euros to increase its training capacity and digitize the entire training offer. YouTube videos with exact replicas of nuclear facilities of all types. What could go wrong? And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none nuts out of week. The Homer Simpson of the UK Navy accidentally fired a torpedo at a nuclear dockyard that then flew across a jetty and smashed into a fence. This information is just coming out now, but the incident happened in March of 2014. Amazingly, no one was hurt when the nine-foot missile, which fortunately was not armed, blasted out of the HMS Argyle while the ship was moored in Plymouth's Devonport Naval Base. The misfire apparently occurred during what was meant to be a simulated testing. A heavily redacted Royal Navy report, released under the Freedom of Information Act, also found that the experienced engineer had wanted to carry out an overdue test. It reads, It is assessed that he seized an opportunity to conduct an overdue serial whilst the system was live and available to him. This may be viewed as a deviation from the intended plan. Ya think? You know, the one thing that never gets discussed when nuclear safety systems are touted is that consistent problem of human error, as was demonstrated so well by this experienced engineer and Darwin Award-adjacent nominee. And that's why anyone who thinks that all things nuke are not subject to human error qualify for this week's We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat needs your support to help meet its monthly financial obligations. Be it a one-time donation, an outpouring of goodwill from your heart, or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all adds up to keep the flow of honest, verifiable nuclear information up front and center with you, the listenership. Even $5 
the equivalent of a cup of coffee and a nice tip to a barista, will help us meet our costs and keep this program running. So buy us a cup of coffee, okay? Give what you can by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. And if you want to buy the show that metaphoric cup o coffee every month, you can quickly set up a monthly $5 donation by clicking on the big green donate button. Know that whatever you can do to help, I'm grateful that you're listening and that you care. For this week's interview, I wanted to find out more about North Korea. Concern about the current escalation of hopefully only verbal missiles between North Korea and Donald Trump has led to a lot of disinformation and missing information on mainstream media. To get a calmer, more reasoned, and a more complete picture of what's going on between these two countries, Nuclear Hot Seat turned, as always, to Robert Alvarez. Bob is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he is currently focused on nuclear disarmament, environmental, and energy policies. At the U.S. Department of Energy, he served as a senior policy advisor to the Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary for National Security and the Environment during the Clinton administration from 1993 to 1991. Bob is one of the few Americans who has ever been on-site at the North Korean nuclear reactors, an act he did on behalf of our government. We spoke earlier today, Tuesday, October 10, 2017. Bob Alvarez, so good to have you with us again on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me on your show. Give us some background on how the Korean War ended, or how, rather, open hostilities ended, and what this status has meant to relations between our two countries since then. Well, technically, we never have concluded a peace agreement with North Korea, nor has South Korea or any of the United Nations that joined us in the fighting. So uh, the fighting uh, technically ended in 1953 with an armistice agreement, but there's been constant simmering warfare going on, off and on, between North Korea, South Korea, and the United States for 67 years now. So officially, we are in a paused state of war with North Korea and have been since 1953. What's the difficulty that we face because of this status? Well, I think that the difficulty is that this is a war that started at the dawn of the Cold War age. And we need to start looking for a path to end this war. The policy that we've been pursuing mostly throughout this period was is one of regime change. We were intent on getting rid of this regime, and it's not working. Uh, only during the first Clinton term in the early 1990s was there a, a shift in that, and that was essentially an agreement that was struck between the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, otherwise known as North Korea, and the United States. Uh, it was the first and only government-to-government uh, -government agreement that was struck between the two countries. The agreement basically was a non-proliferation agreement. North Korea was on the verge of obtaining plutonium for its first nuclear weapons, and North Korea agreed to freeze its plutonium production in exchange for heavy fuel oil 
economic cooperation and construction of two modern light water nuclear power plants. And eventually, North Korea's existing nuclear facilities were to be dismantled and the spent reactor fuel were to be taken out of the country. For eight years, the uh, North Koreans honored this agreement. I'd like to point out before we go further in that timeline that you are not just a passive person reading about this in the news. You served as senior policy advisor to the Energy Department Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary for National Security during the Clinton administration. How did your job bring you in contact with North Korea and its nuclear program to give you the perspective that you have? Well, my job was to provide technical support to the State Department that was engaged in the negotiations of the agreed framework. And when the agreed framework was signed in October of uh, 1994, I was then tasked to assemble teams of people and head up a project to go to North Korea and to essentially secure the spent fuel put it into containers subjected to international safeguards. And so I, I'm one of the few people that actually visited and uh, had fairly extensive knowledge and access to North Korea's nuclear site, especially its reactors and spent fuel. So getting back to the nonproliferation agreement that lasted for eight years, that seems to have worked well. What happened was that Towards the end of the Clinton second term, the United States and North Korea were on the verge of a major breakthrough uh, whereby the United States would provide essentially money to uh, buy uh, per, or to provide compensation for the North Koreans who would therefore refrain from developing intermediate and long-term long-range missiles. And this uh, became tantalizingly close to this, and but the negotiations were overtaken by the 2,000-year presidential election. So when George Walker Bush became president, uh, he pretty much, you know, very much bitterly opposed the agreed framework, as did the Republican Party, who did through many tried to throw many roadblocks in the way of this agreement. And so when he came into power. He shifted away from having an agreement to wanting to over, essentially overthrow the regime. They called it regime change. And, uh, you know, he declared uh, North Korea to be a charter member of the Axis of Evil in January 2002. In September, he expressly mentioned North Korea in a national security policy that called for preemptive ta attacks against countries developing weapons of mass destruction. And then when the Bush administration had its first sit-down meeting with North Korea, they pretty much accused North Korea of cheating and, and said that, you know, basically that they had a secret uranium enrichment program and they faced severe consequences unless they stopped. We all knew about this enrichment program, uh, and it was certainly broadcast in the news media by 1999. But North Korea had strictly complied with the agreed framework freeze plutonium for eight years, and safeguards over uranium enrichment had been deferred in the agreement until sufficient progress was made in development of the light water reactors. That was something that could have been fixed, but what happened was that the Bush administration gave the North Koreans an all-or-nothing ultimatum 
that pretty much blew up in the face of the Bush administration because they weren't expecting North Korea to suddenly say, well, that's the end of that. We're going to start to develop nuclear weapons. Goodbye, just as the United States was poised to invade Iraq. So they basically created a, a, a crisis they hadn't anticipated. And throughout the Bush administration, they attempted, they, they pursued this policy of regime change and had six party talks and the like. And all it did was strengthen resolve and bought the North Korean government more time to amass a nuclear arsenal. So we kind of, you know, have crossed a bridge that's now been destroyed where the Clinton administration had effectively had an agreement that would have uh, prevented North Korea from developing nuclear weapons to one where they now have a nuclear arsenal and are threatening to attack the United States. Did anything change between our two countries during the Obama years? Well, what happened during the Obama years was, I guess, was the continued belligerence of North Korea. And they were responding, by the way, to increase uh, uh, and intensive and prolonged military exercises on their border. I mean, one thing we don't pay much attention to in this country, and the news media hardly ever mentions it, is that no one asks the question, why are the North Koreans acting this way? Why are they being provoked? And it usually boils down to, well, they have a crazy leader. You know, he's a funny hairdo, and he's crazy, and he, he does all these things to make people think that he's an emperor to be worshipped. But what's, what's also happening is that the United States and Japan and Korea are engaged in prolonged and intense military exercises on their border with the intention of overthrowing this regime. And this happens, now it's happening twice a year, it used to happen once a year, and usually every springtime the United States and South Korea and Japan would have these military exercises, provoke the North Koreans, the North Koreans would shoot off uh, nuclear weapons, shoot off nuclear missiles, and this pattern keeps repeating itself. And we, and the American public is largely ignorant of this dynamic that's going on. In fact, I think that some of the people who have been involved in this are simply not telling the truth to the American public. I mean, recently uh, on Comedy Central's Daily Show, hosted by Trevor Noah, Christopher Hill, who is the chief U.S. negotiator under the George W. Bush administration uh, with North Korea, declared, quote, we have never planned to attack North Korea. Well, that's not true. In March of 2016, the Washington Post reported that the United States and South Korea had developed a, a preemptive military operation for decapitation raids targeting North Korean leadership. And so we can't sort of present this as a one-dimensional problem where we're dealing with crazy, irrational people on one end and we're the sane people on the other end. There's two parties to this. And we are doing things to provoke them, and they're doing things to provoke us. And it gets to a point where, you know, what concerns me is that we're going to reach a point of no return where brinksmanship's going to fail, there'll be a miscalculation, and we might have a very, very ugly and bloody war. With North Korea now possessing both nuclear warheads and missiles and developing the capability of combining the two into an effective long-range weapon, well, I don't, believe, I don't believe that that is necessarily the case at this time. I think that they are going in, they are heading in that direction, and it will be a matter of time when they'll be able to do it. But to say that they have it right now, I think, is a stretch. 
And I think that what we really should be concerned about is uh, is sparking a major ground war in the Korean Peninsula that might involve China and Japan. And as you know, our history of America's involvement in ground wars in Asia have not worked out very well for us or for anybody else. Trump has been making many vague yet frightening statements that seem to allude to the fact that he is intent not only on having war with North Korea, but possibly including a nuclear option as part of it. How likely do you think that it will be that that will happen? I can't predict how likely it is because, uh, you know, I'm I'm afraid, you know, based at least on Senator Robert Corker's uh, observation of President uh, Trump recently, that he's sort of treating this as if it's a TV reality show. And you can clearly blunder into a miscalculation that could lead to a, a nuclear war, and that's the last thing we need to have. The other thing that we don't really quite understand about North Korea is that these military exercises that we, we have, and the longer they are and the more intense they are, not only does it provoke the North Koreans, but it also, in my opinion, also strengthens the brutal coercion of that regime over its people. And they live in constant fear of imminent war. When we visited there in 1994-95, we observed how the regime just inundated its citizens for a reminder of the carnage caused by the napalm of U.S. aircraft dropped during the war. And you know, by 1953, the U.S. had de- destroyed nearly all the structures in North Korea, and they never forgot that. And they have a very, very extensive system of underground tunnels. They run regular drills all the time, and people are living over there in a constant state of fear and a constant state of war. And it was a regime that you know thinks nothing of of sending you away to a camp or destroying your family uh, if you question their authority. So in a way, I believe that this situation we have, this pattern that we have is feeding the the dynamic. It's creating more oppression on their end and at the same time leading us further and further to the red line where where if we cross it, we have a major war. And there has to be some way out of this. And one thing that the North Koreans have consistently argued for is for a non-aggression pact with the United States. And the United States has routinely spurned this because it is looked upon as a fake move on the part of the North Koreans who want to, the U.S. to withdraw its troops so it can go, go back and invade the South. And I think that those days are over. I think we need to have some sort of, uh, eventually, we have to have some sort of sit-down with them. And I, I was very encouraged with uh, when Secretary of State Tillerson recently stated that, quote, we do not seek regime change. We do not seek collapse of the regime. It's a very important statement. Now, it's been totally undercut by President Trump with his saber rattling. But in the end, a peaceful resolution to the North Korean situation will have to involve direct negotiations and gestures of good faith by both sides. Former President Jimmy Carter is now saying that he is willing to go to North Korea to discuss a peace treaty with Kim Jong-un. How likely is that to happen? And if it does, how likely is it that his dealings will have any impact at all here 
unofficial policy. Well, I think it's probably unlikely, given the Trump administration and their hostilities, having someone like Jimmy Carter get involved. Now, in truth, Jimmy Carter stepped into to the situation in uh, the summer of 1994 and sat down with the then founder of North Korea, Kim Il-sung, and essentially provided the outlines for the agreed framework. I think that we have to look at some way to end this war. Uh, we can't afford to constantly engage in a situation where we're provoking them, they provoke us, and we keep edging closer and closer to, to something that could be catastrophic. It's just there's, there has to be an end to this. Now, I just think it's unlikely, however, despite Jimmy Carter's good intentions, that the Trump administration would would even consider this. Uh, just watching this man and his tremendous ego, the last thing he wants is someone that would come in, especially from a, the Democratic Party, to upstage him. Let's play the game of what if. If you were placed in charge of our government's North Korean policy right now with full authority, what would you do? Well, I certainly would try to follow what Secretary of State Tillerson has been, been suggesting is to have drag negotiations and making it clear that we do not have any intention of overthrowing their regime and also figuring out what will it take to uh, achieve a, a lasting peace with North Korea. And so these things require some good faith gestures, for example, in exchange for North Korea refraining from blowing off nuclear weapons and doing missile testing, the United States could reduce or halt their military exercises and create some space for negotiation. These are the kinds of things that should be going on. The other thing that people don't quite understand is that if we get into a big war with North Korea, there's a good possibility we're going to wind up in a big war with China. And this has happened before. Most people don't remember that China went to war against the United States during the, what we now know as the Korean War of 1950 and uh, sent in several hundred thousand troops. So we've had war with China. China has an 800-mile border with North Korea with a large population of ethnic Koreans in that area. And they don't look favorably on the idea of a war on the Korean Peninsula that's going to destabilize that region of, of the world and of their country. And so it's a very difficult situation we're in. And there has to be a point at which the United States has to stop rattling the sabers, provide some reassurance to the American public that we're not about to, you know, enter into Armageddon. This is not some sort of game where we have a good cop and a bad cop. Uh, and to take this problem seriously and, and figure out a way to, to basically end this overlong chapter of the Cold War. Do you think there's any chance that whatever actions we take, Korea will ever roll back their nuclear weapons program? I don't think so. The idea, uh, I think it's it's too late to expect North Korea to relinquish its nuclear arms, and that bridge was destroyed when the agreed framework was discarded in the failed pursuit of regime change. And it was a pursuit that not only provided a powerful incentive, but also plenty of time for North Korea to amass a nuclear arsenal. They're not going to let this go. I think what we're now looking at is something akin to a nuclear arms control agreement 
where there would be a limitation, there might be inspections, uh, there might be a reduction uh, or some sort of regime that would somehow limit development of delivery systems. There has to be a quid pro quo. The United States is going to have to refrain from its military exercises. There, there are also probably going to have to be some sort of economic component to this. And there's going to have to be buy-in by South Korea, Japan, and China. Anything else you'd like to leave us with as a thought? Well, the only thing I can say is for people to think about this situation in a way that goes beyond the the normal way that the information has been presented to us by the news media. We're not dealing with some crazy guy with a funny haircut. We're dealing with a fairly rational man who is thinking very much about preserving his regime. Uh, and it may be a very onerous one from our point of view, but what he's doing is in direct response to the things that we're doing. And we have to figure out a way to sort of unwind the tensions here and to bring some peace to this continent. Bob, it's always a pleasure to have your clarity and clear-headedness and articulateness on this show. And thanks so much for being our guest again this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for having me. Bob Alvarez is a senior scholar at the Institute for Policy Studies and a former senior policy advisor to the Secretary and Deputy Assistant Secretary for National Security and the Environment during the Clinton administration. Activist shout-out! Two ways for you to take an action. The first is the Restrict First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act of 2017, which was introduced last January by Congressman Ted Lieu of Los Angeles and Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts. H.R. 669 and Senate Bill 200 would prohibit the president from launching a nuclear first strike without a declaration of war by Congress. The crucial issue of nuclear first use is more urgent than ever, given the current saber-rattling and war of words between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. As Congressman Liu said at the time the bill was announced, Congress must act to preserve global stability by restricting the circumstances under which the U.S. would be the first nation to use a nuclear weapon. Our founders created a system of checks and balances, and it is essential for that standard to be applied to the potentially civilization-ending threat of nuclear war. As Senator Markey said upon introduction of the legislation, nuclear war poses the gravest risk to human survival. Yet, President Trump has suggested that he would consider launching nuclear attacks against terrorists. Unfortunately, by maintaining the option of using nuclear weapons first in conflict, U.S. policy provides him with that power. In a crisis with another nuclear-armed country, this policy drastically increases the risk of unintended nuclear escalation. Neither President Trump nor any other president should be allowed to use nuclear weapons except in response to a nuclear attack. By restricting the first use of nuclear weapons, this legislation enshrines that simple principle into law, which is where the Coalition Against Nukes comes into play. On their website, coalitionagainstnukes.org. They have all the information you will need to be able to make a phone call or send an email to your representative and your senators. 
You can check them out at coalitionagainstnukes.org and click on the feature. It's the first one up there. We need everyone's voice to say, stop the madness. Don't touch it. It's evil. So let's all go out there and take some activist action. Can makes it easy. And the second area where we need your input is to support the activists, the residents, those who are protesting what Boeing is trying to do and what the California Department of Toxic Substances Control just might let them get away with doing, which is not cleaning up the Santa Susana Field Lab and its radioactive as well as its toxic problems. Comments are needed on their website. They said they already have 600, but man, they need a whole lot more from our side because Boeing is stirring up the Audubon Society to protest it, if you can believe that one. Of course, this being a governmental agency, the URL is far too difficult for me to say on the show so that you will actually be able to understand it. But it will be up on the website. There will be a link under nuclearhotseat.com, this episode, number 329. Just scroll down and look for the area that says the missing links. That's where you'll find it. Here's today's final thought. In honor of ICANN, I thought we should start a movement called No, You Can't. It's a movement and a slogan that can be applied to any nuclear facility anywhere. I choose to start with Boeing's attempted cop-out on the cleanup of the Santa Susana Field Lab. I live less than half an hour from Santa Susana, so I take this really personally. Boeing owns the site now and is backing away from signed agreements for the highest level of cleanup on the site to that which is appropriate if people are going to live there. Instead, they want to clean it up to the less expensive, more dangerous, partial cleanup, which is okay if people hike through the area once a week. On last week's show, number 328, Denise Duffield of Physicians for Social Responsibility Los Angeles spoke of two separate meetings that were scheduled locally with the California Department of Toxic Substances Control, or DTSC. I was able to attend the one held last Saturday. And what I saw was absolutely typical for the way the nuclear industry and its captured regulators operate. First, a one-hour open house in a church courtyard with multiple tables set up for the DTSC's various left-brained statistical complications and phone book size, and I mean the old phone books, you know, the really thick ones, phone book-sized reports that we were invited to stand around and study, no tables for alternative perspectives or other groups were provided. You know, it's been said that there are three kinds of liars. There are liars, there are damned liars, and there are statisticians. You can take numbers and slice and dice them any way you like to show whatever you want them to show. I used to work in demographics research for a then-failing TV network, and part of our job was spinning our regular last-place ratings finishes to look like we were winning in our time slots. Abracadabra Shazam, numbers jumbo. 
So when I see a church plaza filled with data handouts and admonitions to just go to the website to learn more, I recognize an intentional obfuscation program intended to drown out activists with enough numbers and obscure data-based factoids to spin the opposition into dizzying submission. At the actual presentation in the hall, we had to sit through another 20 minutes of the DTSC presenting their Boeing-approved blah-blah-blah. Then, finally, we the people were allowed to get up and share. But for no more than three minutes each, can't risk us having long enough to make a substantial point. I sat there, and I watched mothers of dead babies sob out the story of infant neuroblastomas brain cancers caused by the leaked radiation at the Santa Susana Field Lab. I heard stories and saw pictures of birth defects, crippled children, facts and figures from the human perspective, all of it delivered with deeply felt passion to blank-faced bureaucrats whose bureau had already been co-opted and they were sitting there just following orders. So I took a different tack. As the old saying goes, the personal is the political. And when political pressure makes no difference to someone, it's time to go for the human jugular. So when my three minutes came up, I started by lobbing them a softball, congratulating all of them for being obviously employed because they were sitting there on a Saturday afternoon. Their guard thus dropped. I followed with, Now... I know you think of yourselves as good people doing good work, and you do not think of yourselves as doing harm. But if you let this purported cleanup happen to anything less than the highest level, then you, yes you, each of you, personally, will be guilty of the slow-motion, long-range, future murder of children, adults, and elders. In the dead silence that had descended, I went on to link their distanced thinking about the DTSC's current Santa Susana Field Lab environmental impact report with every person in their lives they had ever known who has or had cancer. Just a little subliminal button to twinge their conscience every time the C word came up in conversation. After all, the major effect of radiation exposure is cancer, and one never knows if a local case may have been started by a speck of radioactive something or another from Santa Susana, especially if someone lives in the area or was raised there. Then I pivoted, physically pivoted, and faced the audience and addressed someone from Boeing who had been pointed out to me before we sat down. I said, and you, Mr. Bald Boeing over there, Well, I didn't know his name. What else was I going to call him? Mr. Bald Boeing over there. False Santa Susana Field Lab website and Facebook page to push your company's propaganda? How very Russian of you. If your position is so strong and true and right, why the fake news and website games? Because of that, I want you to do something. Every time you look in a mirror from now on, don't go looking for a nice guy to be peering back at you. Instead, 
See a death's head skull superimposed over your face. That's your real identity. Because you are allied with forces that value money over the sanctity of human life and the future. Then I pivoted back and faced front and the DTSC members and said, Be the good people you really are. Force your agency to keep its word. Stand up, genuinely stand up for people and the environment and the future. Force them to keep their word and clean up Santa Susana Field Lab to the highest standards as agreed and signed with the Department of Energy and NASA. And stop fooling yourselves that if you do anything less, if you find some excuse not to speak up, not to stand for us, not to push for top-level cleanup, you are, alas, nothing better than a long-range, slow-motion murderer, and that is a stain you will never escape. Then I sat down, and at the next break in the speaking order, quietly left. Why did I do that, and why did I do it like that? I've often said on this show that a quantum leap is not some enormous shift. It's the smallest possible change that then extrapolates out to an enormous change over time. A rock in the river, a pebble in the shoe, a mote of dust in your eye. Any of these can create a quantum shift. And that's what I went to that meeting to do. Others from the Santa Susana Field Lab group spoke eloquently of the facts and figures from our perspective, and did so with more facility than I possibly could. Instead, I took a look at the human stance and went for the emotional jugular. With my words, I threw a handful of rocks, pebbles, and dust at the DTSC workers there in the hope that at least one would experience a quantum shift and come out of that meeting subtly changed to maybe make an important difference within their agency at some crucial future moment. Will it work? Who knows? I do believe that many of them will not forget what I said, and perhaps one or two might even have had some bad dreams on Saturday night. But Santa Susana Field Lab is a nightmare from which its victims will never awaken. If some disrupted sleep and theatrical languaging shifts a crucial someone into making a change that extrapolates out into a much larger shift on behalf of people and the environment, it was a good day's work in support of a community, an activist group, and a very worthy, if not crucial, cause. You can do the same thing in your community to any of your officials or experts Speaking truth to power is amazingly empowering and a heck of a lot of fun. And as I said during activist shout-out, if you would like to make a comment in support of a full Santa Susana Field Lab cleanup and do it directly to the DTSC, go to the website and I will have the link up on Nuclear Hot Seat. You've got until December 7, 2017 to speak your mind, so fire away. Remember, I can won the Nobel Prize for Peace this year. So as far as our work goes, yes, 
I can. And no, they can't. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, October 10, 2017. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, japantimes.co.jp, peaceandhealthblog.com, thejapannews.com, newyorktimes.com, tri-cityherald.com, vcstar.com, postandcourier.com, wndu.com, nhk.or.jp, asahi.com, theguardian.com, powerlinks.news, nltimes.nl, udf.by, thesun.co.uk, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers, all of you who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of truth as you support nuclear awareness. Thank you so much for gathering at the Nuclear Hot Seat blog site on Facebook, and if you haven't yet, be sure to stop by, click like, post, and share. If you know of a radio station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat, contact us with their info, or have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to send a donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that, as Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. There. You've all had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all still in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.